Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about lung cancer with Dr. Roy Herbst. Dr. Herbst is Ensign Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology and Professor of Pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. So, Roy, maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about the epidemiology of lung cancer. Is is it still, you know, one of the leading cancers and, and the leading cause of cancer-related death? Well, lung cancer still is, unfortunately, the number one cause of cancer death worldwide, uh, with maybe 1.6, 1.7 million deaths a year. By incidence, it's not the number one cancer diagnosed. Uh, more uh, breast cancer is diagnosed in women and prostate cancer in men. Um, but by death, it, it certainly is uh, the major killer because it tends to uh, present in, in a metastatic way already having spread. But, you know, we're making great inroads now with early screening for lung cancer, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll find more early. And we have seen improvements in survival, but still uh, work to do. Yeah, so I, I wanted to to start off there, and and certainly we'll get into some of the recent advances in in screening and treatment. But you know, lung cancer used to be uh, the number one cancer, and and we saw that breast cancer and prostate cancer kind of pulled ahead several years ago. Um, and in part, I think that that was related to some advances that were made in terms of uh, lung cancer primary prevention. In other words, not getting lung cancer to begin with. Do you want to kind of talk about some of that, uh, particularly where it pertains to smoking cessation? Right. Well, you know, the best way to treat lung cancer still is to prevent it. Um, and and certainly, um even though there is a very real group of patients with a non-smoking lung cancer, as many as 15% or more of patients in the United States, about double that in Asia, still smoking is the uh, one of the primary reasons uh, for uh, causation in lung cancer. So uh, major efforts have uh, been underway over the last 50, 60 years in the United States since the initial Surgeon General's report to stem the tide of, of smoking. You know, um, you know, we've gone down from 50% of Americans smoking um, perhaps to uh, uh, less than 20%, maybe 18% or so, differing among different groups uh, in different states, but still need to do better. But smoking clearly is, is a cause. Now we worry as we've really worked on smoking, you know, both with education, with medications, with counseling, now we see this big surge in e-cigarette use. And we, we worry, uh, and I'm very involved with the American Association of Cancer Research, I actually chair the task force uh, on tobacco uh, control. We're actually looking very carefully at e-cigarettes because we worry that these are being used now um, by, uh, by children and you know, young adults, you know, um, and uh, they're filled with nicotine. And, you know, nicotine is the addictive substance in, in, in cigarettes. So people are getting addicted on nicotine, and then they, they then go to what's called dual use and start to use combustible cigarettes, the, the type we're most familiar with. And then, of course, you know, the story is, is, is all too familiar. So smoking is essentially as important. And I'll tell you, here in New Haven, where we live, you know, uh, the rates are probably a bit higher than on the national average. And, and uh, we're doing a lot of work, you know, with uh, community programs as, as part of our, our lung uh, 
funded research through the National Cancer Institute. We just completed a large trial where when patients came into uh, the hospital, um, some some with problems, some for screening, uh, we, we, we tried to uh, use new methods uh, to help them um, to, to stop smoking, new messaging uh, tools. So that's, that's still such an important part uh, of this field to not smoke. Uh, also, we have to worry about other risk factors, you know, asbestos, uh, radon gas is something we all think about here, uh, living in Connecticut. All of these things can, can be um, uh, risk factors uh, for future development of this disease. So I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said uh, just quickly. Um, so the first was uh, your study looking at new messaging techniques. What is, I mean, there's, there still is, as, as you mentioned, roughly 20% of the population who smoke. So, and for many of them, it's very difficult to quit. Uh, there are all kinds of things out there. There's quit lines, there's patches, there's gum, uh, there's behavioral modification. Some people even um, advocate uh, paying people to quit smoking. Um, and some people are even suggesting that e-cigarettes can be used as a bridge to help people to quit smoking. So for our listeners out there, the 20% who may be uh, smoking as they listen to this, what's the best way to quit and where can they get help? Well, first of all, I would definitely ask for help. That could be your physician, that could be a nurse practitioner, just whoever you see for, for your regular health uh, checks. Um, some of these quit lines can be extremely helpful. And there are a number of ways to, to work on quitting. And you know, this is an addiction and it is hard to quit, especially if you've been using cigarettes for a long time. The nicotine is, is really hard to, to beat. So there are a couple of uh, ways to do it. You know, here in, in our smoking cessation clinic, you know, we'll assess each person on an individual basis. There are certainly ways to substitute for the nicotine other than a combustible cigarette that you smoke, either a lozenge or a patch. Uh, there are certain medications that can help. Um, but then, of course, behavioral modification and counseling, which I think is so important. Here at Yale, where uh, we have an amazing center of emotional intelligence, and uh, there have been studies done to show that different types of messaging can, can be more effective than others. For example, you know, many of you have seen uh, cigarette cartons uh, uh, not so much in the United States, but around the world where there are these horrible images of, of people and, and the consequences of smoking. Uh, those are very negative type uh, messages, but they're intended to scare people from not smoking. Um, there's been some thought that more gain-framed messaging, uh, Anise, where you might show, well, if you don't smoke, you'll feel better. If you don't smoke, your skin will look better. That could be another way of doing it. We're testing some of those new methods here at Yale. The other thing we've done is a biofeedback approach. So we actually have a, an infrared uh, uh, device that can measure carotenoids in the skin and the health of the skin, which we know actually uh, can can get somewhat destroyed uh, with tobacco use. And we actually are using that sort of biofeedback with patients to try to maintain them um, from, 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 from using tobacco. So we've been working very hard on this. Uh, Lisa Fuchido leads this effort now in our clinic. And um, we, we, we're trying to serve as many patients as possible. And by the way, it's not just lung cancer. There are about 20 different cancers that all can you know, uh, trace their, their origin back to smoking. And we, we really try to work on this. Uh, it's something that's now as part of our medical record. Everyone's asked the question about tobacco use. And primary prevention is just so important. But even if we, uh, someone has smoked, and many people have, and they stop, they're still at risk, as you know, of developing lung cancer. And this is where screening comes in. And, you know, the idea that you can do a, a low-dose CAT scan to screen for lung cancer 
And I'm very proud to say that even during this very difficult year with COVID and clinics uh, closed or moved, we've actually had a very uh, strong year number-wise in the number of patients in the area that we've screened. Lynn Tanui and, and her team have just done a remarkable job with that. So um, screening patients and finding uh, cancers early in people at high risk is also a very important tool that we're using. Yeah, so so important. I think, you know, the the last question is just before we move on from smoking cessation is I wanted to get your thoughts on taxation. Um, so certainly in in some parts of the world, uh, they've found that, you know, it, making people um, making it hurt in people's pocketbook is often a deterrent to to smoking. Where do you come down on that? Um, do you advocate that uh, governments should put stiff uh, taxes on cigarette purchases uh, to make that um, less appealing? Well, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. You know, different states do different things. I still remember once uh, being in a, a drugstore in New York City and someone came in for a pack of cigarettes and, you know, it could cost up to $15, $20 with some of the different taxes. And, and um, you know, um, people will find, I think people will find the cigarettes elsewhere or, or um, I think it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a useful technique, but it would have to be a universal sort of technique. Otherwise, people will, will find ways of, of, of getting cigarettes. I'm much more in, in favor of, you know, some of the approaches I mentioned, whether it be counseling, uh, medications. Even you mentioned the e-cigarettes. You know, I think that the e-cigarettes as a substitute for someone who's tried everything else uh, could you could work in that way, but it has to be studied in a regulated way. You know, there needs to be a clinical trial, and we're actually trying to do some of those here. You know, right now at at, at Yale, but um, you know, they're hard, especially now with with some of the COVID regulations. But it would be nice to see if we can use e-cigarettes in a measured way with a prescribed dose. You know, uh, as a tool. But that that's that as of yet, there are other forms of nicotine replacement, but but clearly. Stopping people from smoking, whatever method is used, ha is a national, it's an international sort of uh, emergency, uh, despite the fact that it's so much better than it was, it, it really, the only good level of tobacco use is none. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and you worry also about the e-cigarettes being yet another addictive substance, and we don't really know long term um, what the health consequences are of that. The other thing that you mentioned was that there are many lung cancers that happen um, for reasons outside of cigarette smoking. Um, so, for example, you mentioned uh, in Asia about 50% of, of lung cancers are not uh, related to, to cigarette smoking. And I, I wonder whether you think that there are some environmental issues um, that, that we need to consider. I mean, is this part of you know, kind of the uh, pollution that we're seeing uh, in terms of um, uh, manufacturing and so on that might be greater in some industrialized parts of Asia that that promotes uh, lung cancer, or or do we not know why uh, there's these disparities? Well, you know, you're talking about the non-smoking lung cancer, um, which uh, uh, initially, you know, was due to the epidermal growth factor receptor uh, mutation that was uh, discovered more than 20 years ago. And, and those levels are much higher uh, in, in Asia than in the U.S., about double, 30 to 40 percent versus 15 to 20 percent. I don't know that it's environment because if uh, someone's born in Asia and moves to uh, Southern California, it, it seems like they have the same higher risk. So I think it's, there's something genetic. What amazes me is with all the tools we have, you know, able to sequence, you know, 
genomes and we can sequence dozens and dozens of patients each day, we still have not found what is the the link there, what is the genetic factor. It's being looked at quite intensively. It's it's this cooperation between researchers around the world, but we still don't know exactly why uh, these mutations in epidermal growth factor receptor are so much more uh, uh, common uh, in Asia than the U.S., but we're looking for it. Um, um, we're certainly learning how to treat that type of cancer with with drugs, with, with oral agents. It's it's actually been historic. I think that's part of the reason we're seeing, you know, a couple of percent a year decreases in the death rates from lung cancer because of what we call targeted therapy. But even even when those drugs work, uh, as you know, um, patients will become resistant. That's actually something we're studying very much here in our group. You know, Katie Politti and Sarah Goldberg and Mark Lemon actually is one of the projects on our, our, our big lung spore grant are actually looking at mechanisms of sensitivity and resistance to these drugs so that we can help more patients develop newer and better, more effective and less toxic ways to treat this disease. Yeah. So I think that as, you know, we, we kind of think about lung cancer and the fact that it, it no longer is the number one uh, cancer uh, in people, uh, thanks to uh, reduction in smoking cessation and, and other things, um, it still remains the number one killer in terms of being uh, the number one cause of cancer-related morbidity and mortality. Has that reduced in recent years, uh, thanks to some of the things that we'll be talking about in terms of understanding the genomics and tailored therapy and so on? Are we seeing the needle move? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I've seen this myself. So I, I started working in this field about 20, 25 years ago as a young fellow, uh, you know, young doctor at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, actually. And uh, no one even wanted to work in this field back then. It was, it was really, you know, if you had lung cancer, you know, we had surgery and, and radiation techniques. But if it had spread, really the chemotherapy was okay, but really didn't do much. And uh, I think over the years, we've we've really taken the five-year overall uh, survival from lung cancer, which was in the, in the low teens, 10 11%. And now it's it's as high as 19% or more. Now that's all across all stages, stage one, two, three, and four, four being the most advanced. But that's progress. But the real progress that we're seeing is, is identifying a more personalized approach to this disease and, and learning how to treat it with some of these new targeted therapies, learning how to treat it with immunotherapy. And yeah, I've seen, you know, the the I've seen patients now uh, in 2021 who back in 1997, 1998, you know, they would have had very little hope with this disease. And now they come here to our clinics. They either get standard of care or clinical trials. And a small proportion, increasing every day, are, are doing better. So um, there is definitely progress, visible progress in this field. And what's driving this progress in these is science. So understanding the science, what drives the lung cancer, what's causing it to grow, and how to treat it in more effective ways. And we're going to talk all about that right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. 
Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. We're talking about recent advances in the management of lung cancer patients. And Roy, right before the break, you were telling us that you have seen visible uh, progress in terms of reducing lung cancer mortality. This remains the number one cancer killer uh, of Americans, both men and women, but that we're seeing progress. So there are so many different avenues that we've seen in terms of uh, lung cancer management um, that have contributed to this. What do you think is the greatest driver? Well, the American Cancer Society announced earlier this year a 2% decrease in deaths from lung cancer uh, a year since 2013. So clearly something's happening. I think part of it is the prevention, um, either primary prevention by avoiding smoking and other toxins, or, or the screening. But uh, I have to believe a lot of it's been the therapies that we've seen in the last uh, several years. Understanding the molecular basis of this disease. See, if we just say lung cancer, that's not really true. It's lung cancers. Everyone cancers everyone's cancer is a little bit different, uh, caused by a different mechanism, uh, a different genetic background. So now what we're doing is we're taking the patient's um, cancer and we're Performing uh, molecular techniques, we're sequencing, we're looking at what makes it tick. You know, what, what is driving that cancer? And now there are about seven or eight different, uh, different mutations, different markers in these that we can then pair with a specific drug. So we're personalizing the therapy. And that's nice, one, because these are oral therapies, you know, that you take it by mouth. They're much less toxic than the chemotherapy we used to use. And we see the tumors shrink in a large percentage of patients. So uh, many of these started out as clinical trials, and, and now they're, they're moving forward to standard of care. So I think that's having a great benefit. I've seen it myself over the last 15, 20 years, uh, certainly with uh, in the last decade, many approved drugs in this space. So you really want to make sure that your, your cancer is analyzed in this way so that you have access to any of these drugs. Now, like anything else, nothing's perfect. With time, the, the tumor will get smart and learn how to override these blockages. But that's why we're doing research, all of us at our different centers, to try to figure out what are the next steps. And um, and we're continuing to raise the bar. But that's certainly been one of the major advances. The second has been immunotherapy. And, you know, the idea that we can use the, the body's own immune system to attack the cancer really began in melanoma and kidney cancer. But lung cancer being so common is the area where we're seeing just amazing results that we can now actually take a cancer that's already spread throughout the body and we can treat with one of these immunotherapy drugs uh, and we're, we're doing that now. And when we do that, we actually, in about 20% of the patients, we see amazing results. And in the rest, sometimes we see some, some activity and, and in others we don't, so we have to do a little bit more. But these are patients who never before would have had any hope of, of, of doing well on, on some of these therapies. And then if that all was not enough, we're taking all these therapies that work in the most advanced stages and we're moving them earlier and earlier in disease. If I can tell you one thing that I've seen over my career is the best drugs 
work best when they're used in the earliest uh, possible stage, after surgery, when the, the burden of lung cancer is, is the lowest. So now we're doing what's called adjuvant therapy. And I was very fortunate to actually present just this last year, some data where an EGFR inhibitor used after a surgery had, had really a, a high impact on how patients did after that surgery. So the, the sky is the limit. Research in this area is paying off. We're seeing tangible benefits. But what I can also say and uh, tell you, and I'm sure many listening to this know this from their own experience, we still have to do even better. And that's why research, uh, science, you know, cooperative work, working together is going to be so important. And that's the types of programs that we lead here at our center. So, so Roy, let, let's dig into a, a few things that you uh, kind of talked about. So the first was targeted therapy and, and genomics. And, and we've talked a lot on the show about um, kind of uh, unpacking that concept in a variety of different cancers um, and, and really trying to figure out what are the main drivers in lung cancer. So are all lung cancers kind of profiled in this way? And are there particular mutations that have druggable targets um, that you look for? Well, certainly um, um, all lung cancers, um, when they've already spread from the lungs, um, that are what we call uh, non-squamous lung cancers, which are the majority, should be uh, profiled in this way. And actually, it's my belief we actually should probably uh, profile all of them, you know, to understand what are the determinants that are causing that cancer to grow, because that will allow us to match with the best therapy. Now, I'm concerned, you know, one of the big issues we have is access to care and making sure all patients get this uh, screening done. Uh, one thing we're doing very uh, 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 much work on is to try to get navigators out to all the different areas of the city to build trust, you know, uh, you know, within Connecticut. We want every patient to have access to uh, coming to a center where they can have their tumor uh, profiled. But yes, if you profile the tumor, there's probably as much as a 20% chance you'll find something that will allow you to match that patient with an oral drug. Uh, which, uh, in my opinion, is certainly preferable to giving a nonspecific uh, chemotherapy. So that's a huge advance, and we're continuing to find more of these and new combinations that can be used. So yes, that that's what we call precision-guided therapy. And for the patients who don't have one of these mutations, um, do they get standard chemotherapy? And, and have there been any advances in terms of standard chemotherapy for those people who either don't have a druggable target or who have a druggable target and who uh, recur? Well, incredibly, the answer is yes. So I mentioned immunotherapy already. So if someone does not have one of those targets, we actually can look for another target, something called PDL1. Now, PDL1 actually uh, was in part discovered by Li Ping Chen, actually a professor here at, at Yale, and um, uh, he's one of our collaborators. But we actually can uh, measure PDL1 in tumors. And if, if the level is very high, that tells us that the immunotherapy might work alone. So we give those patients immunotherapy, assuming they don't have some reason we can't. Sometimes you can't reactivate the immune system because someone might already have some bad arthritis or you know, a, a, what we call an autoimmune disease that, that precludes that. But for the rest, Denise, again, unless they have a contraindication, we're giving immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. It wouldn't have been what I would have guessed would have been such an active therapy, but for whatever reason, when you give chemotherapy and immunotherapy together, you at least have an additive effect, meaning the chemotherapy kills some of the tumor cells, releases some of the proteins that activate the immune system, and then you use these drugs that um, 
uh, what we call them checkpoint inhibitors that unleash the power of the immune system, and that's become a standard of therapy. Now, I'll tell you that those results are are, are really good and, and, and are much better than what we've had in the past, but in my opinion, we still have to raise the bar. So that's where clinical trials come in. And it would be my... Um, my 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 big hope that in that room, when a patient uh, and a physician or a nurse practitioner or whoever is there uh, are meeting, someone brings up, is there a clinical trial? Is there something new that's looking at a new agent, a new drug, something that might even be more active? Uh, and of course, that's investigation, but that's really how we uh, we 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 continue to do better and better, and we're we're inching up um, the, uh, the 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 benefits from therapy in lung cancer. So certainly clinical trials, I mean, we've talked on this show a lot about clinical trials and the fact that um, people who participate in clinical trials tend to do better than people who don't. Um, are all of the clinical trials uh, in lung cancer now really geared around uh, targeted therapies and immuno-oncology, or are there any clinical trials that are looking at um, advances in standard chemotherapy for people who may not be eligible for uh, those other therapies, either because they don't have a target or because they don't uh, have a tumor that's expressing PDL1. Well, standard chemotherapy clearly has its place, and uh, certainly in earlier stages of disease, before the tumors have spread from the lung, we're using chemotherapy with radiation therapy, for example, and that that can be curative therapy. Um, we, we're often adding immunotherapy in afterwards. But I actually personally think we've we, we've pretty much come as far as we can with uh, chemotherapy. It's uh, somewhat nonspecific. It can have a number of side effects. However, we're, we're finding new targets. So like right now, uh, just in the last several months, there's been data on a new target against something called KRAS. Now, um, uh, KRAS, uh, which is an oncogene, actually first came from uh, a, a rat model, Kirsten Rass uh, rat. Uh, KRAS actually um, is about 12 uh, to 20% of lung tumors. The actual uh, uh, variant of this that now has uh, multiple drugs that are out there is what we call G12C. Probably doesn't mean much to a lot of those who are listening, but it's a specific abnormality that occurs in 12% of lung cancer patients. That's a lot of patients. Remember, I told you it's 1.6, 1.7 million worldwide. And there are actually agents now, not approved yet, but that are in clinical trial, showing positive results that can make those tumors shrink. So before I pull off some chemotherapy, which by the way, we will do, and we do need to use, and, and sometimes we even use it as we're waiting for a clinical trial to become available, we are beginning to study and, and use these KRAS drugs, and I think that's going to be the next paradigm. So we've gone from chemotherapy to targeted therapy to immunotherapy, and now KRAS, which is another target, but it's it's a it's a broad target, and it always was, you know, the the holy grail. You know, um, there have been so many approaches and, and ways to try to target it. It's a very difficult uh, target for uh, in a cancer because it. It, it, uh, it, uh, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but just to say that the the, the pocket that we have to block with a drug is, is is so narrow that it's very hard to get a drug in there to stick to, to block that. But um, scientists and chemists have figured that out. Another example, science drives innovation. Science brings new agents to the clinic. Then we test them in the clinic, and we test them using samples from patients and and, and a series of very uh, careful studies to bring new new, new things to uh, standard of care. So uh, amazing progress, still a lot more that needs to happen. 
You know, and and this brings me to the whole area of clinical trials. You know, for many patients, um, historically, they always thought that clinical trials were what you tried when there was nothing else left, when you had exhausted all other options, when the cancer was metastatic and had spread all over the body. But you're really talking about clinical trials as being, you know, avant-garde as being, um, you know, state-of-the-art medicine. And that might actually be helpful, particularly in patients who are so fortunate as to have detected their cancer early when it's not metastatic. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, clinical trials really are, you know, the uh, uh, the the best way in, in, in many uh, cases to um, you know, treat a cancer, um, especially when you're dealing with a situation where, um, you know, it is incurable and, and you're not able to, um, you know, uh, treat with a standard of care. I still remember the example of a patient, has to be about eight years ago, we were studying a drug in clinical trial, one of these immune checkpoint inhibitors, and he came in with advanced lung cancer. He'd already been to see several other um, uh, practitioners around uh, around the state, and um, we had one slot left on this trial, and you know um, we went back and forth, and he decided to go on this study, and um, you know he went on this. It's this drug's now approved, um, and um, did very well. Uh, eight years later, I still get emails from him. He's uh, a photographer. He sends me pictures from from the wild. This is where a clinical trial can really pay off, you know, um, because now. Many years before approval of a drug, someone took a chance on this trial. The, 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 the alternative would have been standard of care therapy. So we're not keeping anything from this patient, but bringing that, that trial uh, to bear on that patient really helped him and helped him live a quality life. So that's what we hope for. That's why clinical trials are so important. And now, um, I think as you're alluding to, we're using these clinical trials in the earliest stages of disease. So I know you're a surgeon, so you 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 cut out you know uh, tumors, but still there's a chance that they'll recur. Um, uh, you know even if you've gotten everything out. So now what we're doing is we're taking these best therapies in lung cancer, uh, uh, the immunotherapy, uh, the targeted therapy, and we're using them after surgery, even when we see that there's no disease, knowing that there's a high risk of recurrence. And those data, some of them are already showing positive results. So um, uh, the field of research and clinical care are one. And the bottom line is we want to give the best care for patients at the best possible time. Dr. Roy Herbst is Ensign Professor of Medicine in Medical Oncology and Professor of Pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.